For scripture reading this morning, we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 21. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 21. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you up. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Every one who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this, and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to, provide, to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there is no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon, and bring them all down as fugitives, even as the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. If you could open your scriptures this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, titled the sermon, The Light of the Gospel. We know the gospel means good news, but what is light? You know, I asked the children this morning in the kids' assembly, what is light? And, and nobody answered for a while, and finally one brave soul said, something that is not dark. But what is it? Is it data, or is it particles, or is it waves? Is it just a sensory experience, something that we see? Can you store it in a bottle, or can you keep it in your brain? Can you buy it on Amazon? The closest that we come to storing light is is storing the energy forms that make light. And so we have flashlight batteries or, or matches. 
But according to people who study it, and according to the reliable source of Wikipedia, visible light is electromagnetic radiation with wavelengths between 400 and 700 nanometers. And there are other forms of electromagnetic radiation outside the range of visible light, such as X-rays and microwaves and radio waves. And of course, in, in these forms, light can be diagnostic or therapeutic or used in other sorts of practical ways. And so the gospel is good news. It is information that must be understood and believed. But the gospel is also light. It is energy that is external to us. It is power that we cannot store. It is transformation that we cannot package and deliver. And Paul here calls us to receive both the light and the knowledge of the gospel. The gospel is knowledge that can be understood, and it is light that reveals and energizes. So it's not just light that we see like we see a distant star, but it is a light that illuminates our path. And so if we try to walk the journey of life without this light, it is like walking blindfolded on interstate the wrong way at night. It, it is not a good idea. It is spiritual death. And so here in these verses, Paul describes three characteristics of one who walks in the light of the gospel. And, and I admit, I, I, I kind of picked these ideas um, out, and, and I'm, I'm skipping over some of the, the really deep, profound, philosophical, theological sorts of ideas that, he, that, that are also present here. Um, but the, the three things that we will look at, the three ideas are perseverance, integrity, and humility. So let's, let's read this text, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here Paul continues the discussion of the gospel that he has started in the previous chapter. And as we noted last time, it seems that in chapter 3, Paul switches from responding to his opponents in, in a bit of a, a personal um, response to, to some issues that were going on and, and launches into this theological discussion. And he had spent the first two chapters basically defending his ministry and explaining why he had made some of the decisions he had. Because even someone as, as gifted as Paul was not immune from criticism, and he was severely criticized by the church, and so he was responding to that. And, and so the, the people who were opposing Paul were either teaching a, a different gospel 
or they were launching personal attacks against Paul in order to undermine the message that he taught. And so Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to defend the gospel from those who sought to undermine it or to teach a different gospel. And so it's generally understood that Paul is responding to specific accusations or situations as he's writing this letter. So when he says we don't use underhanded ways or tamper with God's word, it implies that either others were doing this or they were accusing him of doing this. And so here, even as he's going on this this kind of theological speech, he is also responding to his accusers and defending the ministry that he is doing. And so while the specifics of the conflicts that we experience may differ from what Paul was in, I think we can learn from his response to this trial that he was in. So let's let's look at at what he says. And he starts here in verse 1 with, therefore. And as we know, we have to see what the word is therefore. And so if we go back to chapter 3, we see that Paul argues for the superiority of the new covenant over the old. He says, the ministry of righteousness is more glorious than the ministry of condemnation in verse 9. And then in verse um, 17, he says, the spirit of the Lord brings freedom. And in verse 18, we are beholding the glory of the Lord, and that brings transformation. And then he moves into to this um, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, because of this, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And, and you notice he says, we do not lose heart. He's not just talking about himself. So he, he's including all believers. And in case there's any confusion, if you look at the previous verse in verse 18, he says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. And then he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. So these verses are not just for those in ministry, but it's for all those who are walking in the ministry of the new covenant. And so having this ministry, walking in the light of the gospel, beholding the glory of the Lord, results in perseverance. He says, we do not lose heart. So what does he mean when he says we do not lose heart? Does it mean that we are never discouraged? Does it mean that we are sure that things will always go well? Does it mean that trials are a sign of failure? Well, of course not, because if that's what he means, we're all in trouble. And our experience tells us otherwise, because we do get discouraged. Things do not go as we wish, and sometimes we wonder if we're failing at life. But it's not just our experiences that tell us that life is hard. We look at Paul himself to see that his life was also difficult. And in fact, he had started out the book by talking about the terrible afflictions that he had endured. And he says in in chapter 1, verse 8, that they were so utterly burdened beyond their strength that they despaired of life itself. Then he talks in chapter 2 about this painful visit that he had made to the Corinthian church. And then at the end of his life, Paul, writing to Timothy, said in 2 Timothy 4, I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So so he's kind of sounding a a victorious note, but then a, a few verses later, he goes on to discuss the disappointments and desertions that he had experienced. And he says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me 
but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And so Paul did have occasion to lose heart. He did not have an easy life. And in fact, later in this book, he describes some of these difficulties. So if you just turn back to chapter 11, verses 24 through 30, he gives, gives a classic list of this. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift in the sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from many other things, from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So Paul here is not saying that we do not get discouraged or that we do not have hardships. Instead, to lose heart means to give in. It means to give in to evil. It means to stop fighting. And so we see the same word in Galatians 6, 9, when he says, let us not grow weary of doing good. And in 2 Thessalonians, it says, do not grow weary in doing good. And so Paul, in his suffering, in the, the, the depth of his suffering, he did not lose heart. He did not give in to evil. He did not turn to another source of comfort. He did not defect from the gospel. He did not give up on God. He persevered. And I think if, if there's something that, that we need to comprehend, that we need to, to anchor ourselves in, it is the fact that our life will be difficult and the fact that we will need to persevere. So the challenges that each of us face are going to be different, but the temptations to lose heart are the same. And so our challenges might come from a, a personal valley of darkness or from difficult close relationships or just from a growing awareness of the profound brokenness of the world and how it impacts everything that is close to us. And in those challenges, the devil is seeking to destroy our faith, to make us lose heart, to give in to evil, to turn to some other God. But the call of Christ is to persevere and to not grow weary in doing good. So what is this path to perseverance? And what marks the one who perseveres? And why do some lose heart? Some of the, the keys to answering these questions are in the text. And walking in the light of the gospel empowers our perseverance. It, we are able to persevere as we realize our need of God's mercy. We are here by the mercy of God. We have this ministry by the mercy of God. Paul could have listed all the trials that he endured as proof of, of his spiritual standing. He could have listed his religious heritage as, as proof of his good pedigree. But he counted himself as nothing. He counted his religious accomplishments as garbage. He claimed nothing but the mercy of God. And when we put ourselves in a position of deserving something, we will be disappointed. 
And so for some, it's, I deserve to be respected or loved in my marriage because I am so respectful and loving. Or I deserve to be honored by my children because I sacrifice so much to raise them. Or I deserve to have a raise at work because of the great value that I bring to the company. Or I deserve to be excused for my sin because of the way I was treated or because of my unique suffering. What is it that you deserve? What are your expectations for family or church or work or your life? And why do you deserve to get whatever it is that you want? What are you chasing after? And why do, why do you want it? You might not put it into so many words, but you probably have some expectation of return for the investment and energy that you are putting into whatever you're chasing after. And we can bring the same expectation into our relationship with God. I invest this, I should get this in return. I read my Bible and go to church and and am nice to other people, so I should have an easy life. Or on the flip side, it's not fair that bad things happen to me when I did nothing to deserve it. Or why does my car break down or my health, health fail or my family disappoint me when I have not done anything to deserve this? Now, there, there are cause and effect principles that, that are present in life. If, if we're lazy, we'll go hungry. And if we're angry and bitter, we will have few meaningful relationships. Galatians 6 says that whatever one sows, that he will also reap. But the fact of the matter is, when we come to God, we come before him only on the basis of his mercy. We deserve destruction and judgment, and he offers us his mercy. And so if we are going to persevere, if we are going to not give in, we must remember that we come before God because of his mercy, and we are here because of his mercy. We deserve nothing. And Paul describes this in in Philippians 3, this shift in his thinking before and after he knew Christ. Before he knew Christ, before he experienced the light of the gospel, his life was marked by adherence to the letter of the law. He had every reason to deserve God's favor. In his flesh, he was observing the demands of the law. But when he met Christ, everything got turned on its head. He counted all of those things as rubbish because he found the power that comes in knowing Christ through faith, instead of trying to climb the ladder to him through his works. But knowing Christ didn't mean that Paul was no longer intentional about how he lived his life, and it didn't just mean that he was adopting a different belief system. But his goals changed. It was no longer about earning God's favor, but in knowing Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and even sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, pressing on, straining forward to what lies ahead. He saw the light. He experienced the power of the gospel. And through faith in Christ, because he was already righteous, and having experienced the mercy of God, he wanted to know more of God. So what is it that keeps you going? What motivates your perseverance? Are you walking in the ministry of the Spirit? Have you turned to the Lord and had the veil removed from your eyes so that you can see the light of His glory? Do you acknowledge your need of God's mercy? Is your life marked by love? Do you love your family, your neighbor, and your enemy as you love yourself? 
You know, it's hard to show mercy to others if you're not aware of your own need for it. And Paul says we've received the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the Spirit that gives life. We have received it by the mercy of God, and we do not lose heart. We do not give up when things are hard. We do not give up on each other. We do not turn to evil. We do not turn to false gods of comfort, of ease, or addiction. But we are people who persevere. We are committed to the gospel, and we are committed to each other. So the first mark of the one who is in the light is marked by perseverance. And second, he is marked by integrity. Paul goes on in in verse 2 to describe some of the things that, that he's not involved in. And this is probably in response to some of the accusations against him. He says, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. Disgraceful means shameful, something that causes shame or shameful deeds. And underhanded is, is hidden or secret things. As people of Christ, we do not have to live in shame. We do not have to hide our problems. Jesus warns us in Luke 12, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. And so, in our age of electronic communications, much more of what we say is stored in some form, and people frequently get into trouble when those communications, uh, whether it's emails or text messages or social media posts, are, are revealed. But there's another level of of shame and hiding that goes on that will never be revealed by investigative journalism. Even if there is no electronic evidence or any other evidence, the hidden sins of your life will be revealed someday. And Jesus said, Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So our, our sins can be forgiven. They can be removed now through the blood of Christ, and he will remember them no more. Or you can continue to hide them until they're revealed for all to see. But hypocrisy stands against the light of the gospel. You know, it's difficult to be honest about our problems in an environment where everything is picture perfect. And so if the culture of the church is one in which everyone is expected to have their act together and not have any struggle against sin, then it becomes harder to go to your brother and confess your sin and ask him to walk with you. But if we are a people of mercy and people who have experienced God's mercy, then we can be honest about the areas that we struggle in, and we can walk with others without shaming them in their sin struggles. And as we walk in the light of the gospel, we will expose the works of darkness. We cannot continue to live in sin. We must not be living in sin if we are walking in the light. And so the church needs to be a place where sin is is, um, dealt with, where we are honest about it, and where we can live in victory over it. It's not a place where we should cover it up just so that we can make good impressions. The person of integrity does not do things in underhanded or shameful ways. And the other thing that Paul says that describes the person of integrity is that we do not practice cunning or tamper with God's word. To practice cunning has this idea of trickiness or craftiness. 
in the, it was used of those who diluted the wine they sold. And he uses the same word later in chapter 11 when he referred to Eve being deceived through the cunning of Satan. And one way that Satan did this was through tampering with God's word. He said, did God really say? And we can tamper with God's word by adding or subtracting to what it teaches. God has always expected his people to take his commands very seriously. And so he told um, his people in Deuteronomy, you shall not add to the word that I command, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And then again, in the book of Revelation, we are warned against adding or taking away from the words of the prophecy of the book. So God has given us all that we need to know him and obey him through his word. And when we add to what he has said or disregard what he has said, we are showing our, our disregard for the authority and infallibility of scripture. And so Paul restates this principle of integrity in a positive statement. He says, instead of shaming and hiding, instead of, of trickery or changing God's word, we openly state the truth. You know, truth is not subjective. It doesn't depend on how you feel today, and it doesn't depend on whether we accept it or not. He appeals to his own conduct and character as he defends his integrity. He says he commends himself to their conscience in the sight of God. So he has nothing to hide. He is willing to be open with them. And he says, look at my life. I have, um, I'm a person of integrity. So truth does not need to be defended. If there is sin or shameful behavior or trickery, it will eventually be revealed. So when we're not sure of the truth, when we're skeptical about someone else's claims, many times, if you give it enough time, things will come to the light. But Paul here was not ashamed to be open about his life. And for Paul, being a person of integrity meant that he presented the truth of the gospel regardless of the consequences. He didn't water it down. He didn't use some bait-and-switch technique to get people to accept it. And he didn't make it say more or less than what it actually said. But why, if, if Paul was doing this with integrity, if he was preaching the truth, why did some people not accept it? Why was he not more successful? He says the primary reason that people do not accept the message is that their minds are hardened or blinded. And what they are blinded to is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It is not just information that they need to receive, but they are spiritually blind, that they cannot see the light. And it's not just evil, heathen people that are blind. Jesus accused the Pharisees also of being blind. In their radical focus on observing the superficial markers of righteousness according to the law, they missed the point of the law itself. And so when the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the tradition of their fathers by not washing their hands, Jesus called them blind guides. And he said, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, he says, 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Then he gives this list of of qualities, add to your faith, virtue and knowledge and self-control, and etc. And he says, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So even if we know God, even if we've had our eyes open to the truth of the gospel, we are still at risk of our vision going bad or our eyes being darkened. And we need to reorient ourselves to the light and continue to walk in the light. There's a particular type of brain injury that can happen in strokes or after a surgery that makes a person unable to recognize the things that they see. Their, their eyes still work. They can, they can see objects. It's not that they can't see it, but they can't name it. They, they don't know what it is that they're seeing. And, and so functionally, they're, they're essentially blind. There was one case of a man who mistook his wife for his hat. Or another man was shown a rose, and, and he described it as a convoluted red form with a linear green attachment. But he didn't know what it was. But when he smelled it, he's like, oh, that's a rose. Or a person can be shown a series of faces with different expressions and not be able to describe what he sees. But if he's shown the same series of faces, he can describe the emotion that he feels when he looks at that image. So even though we see something physically with our eyes, it only makes sense to us. We can only, um, it's only useful to us as it's processed by various parts of our brain that help us to understand what it is and what is significant about it. And so I think there's some parallels for our spiritual vision. We can hear a truth or experience an emotion or be part of a program. But if we're experiencing that in isolation from the rest of the truth of Scripture and the light of the gospel, it, it becomes a nonsensical experience or truth. We are essentially blind or brain damaged. And the treatment for blindness is not in ourselves. It is not in our programs. It's not a better preacher or a better church or a better set of rules. Paul says in verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul saw what the blind do not see. The answer is Jesus Christ as Lord. So if, like the heathen, your eyes are blinded by sin, the answer is Jesus Christ. Or if, like the Pharisees, your eyes are blinded by your own attempts at righteousness, the answer is Jesus Christ. And if, as a believer, you are blinded by being too nearsighted, by focusing too narrowly on one thing, the answer is Jesus Christ. So Paul, even though he commended himself to every man's conscience, did not preach himself. He did not see himself as a solution to blindness. And he demonstrated the third aspect of living in the light of the gospel, 
and that is humility. He said, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, humility is not weakness or lack of courage. Humility is knowing who you are before God. Humility is having your eyes opened to the depth of your sin and of knowing that the worst sinner on the street has the same broken and sinful heart that you were born with and that you are saved by God's mercy. There was a pastor who resigned to go lead another church, and this dear old lady was weeping over his decision to leave, and she said, things just will never be the same. And the minister tried to console her and said, don't worry, I'm confident you will get a new pastor who is better than me. But she continued to sob and said, that's what the last three pastors have said, but they just keep getting worse. Sometimes other people help us on our humility. But what we proclaim is not ourselves, not our programs, not our personality. We proclaim Christ. We are servants of each other. And so we do not set up any person or leader or committee as, as more important than others. And, and the, one, the one description of humility that, that I like is, it's not thinking less of ourselves, it is thinking of ourselves less. And as we stand in the light of the gospel, we see God's greatness and know our true position before him, and we are his servants. Now, knowledge is necessary because the, the Bible teaches faith comes by hearing. We must hear and understand the truth of the gospel. But in addition to hearing the truth, we must see the light. If all we do is hear the truth, we might become conceited and proud in our knowing. But when we see, when our eyes are opened, we are humbled. Paul said he was a servant of the people to whom he ministered, and he longed for their growth and maturity in the gospel. He proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. And the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. For Paul, this was a very personal statement. God shone down on him from heaven at the time of his conversion. And he went from being a killer of Christians to being a Christian missionary because of the power of that light. And so Paul saw his task in ministry to be one of calling people to that light, of calling them to turn their eyes to the light and to to realize their hopeless condition apart from that. And as we said in the beginning, light is not something that can be neatly packaged, like information. It's harder to grab onto. But light always has a source. And God has given us light in the face of Jesus Christ. We see the light through our knowledge of Christ. And we see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And we make sense of that light through what we learn about Jesus in Scripture. And so through Christ, we can see the light and we can know God's glory. In the Old Covenant, God's glory was veiled, but in Christ, we get a fuller picture of the glory of God. And as we consider the life that Jesus lived, we see the attributes of the Father lived out in real life, in flesh and blood. You know, God's glory was demonstrated to us in Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, that the brightness of his divine presence. But his glory is also and more regularly demonstrated to us 
through Jesus in his life of service and love and sacrifice. And we also see in Jesus' death, God's wrath against sin. So has the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shone in your heart? Have you seen the light? Have your eyes turned to him? And how are you radiating that light into the world around you? Christ must be the source of our light within. And to keep shining, you need to walk in the light. We are not radioactive. We cannot sustain energy within ourselves. And 1 John instructs us to walk in the light. And so we, we remain in this on a continual, ongoing basis. And so if we live in the light, we will fight against the flesh. We will not give in to the works of the flesh, but we will demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. And so like a single flame can light many candles, Christ shining through us can open the eyes of those living in darkness. And we have the opportunity to live in this world in a way that might be the only light that others will see. But it's not limited to being a light to those who are walking in darkness, to the unbelievers. We can also be a light to our brothers and sisters in the church. And we have a big opportunity here to help each other move beyond our nearsighted tendencies. And it only happens, though, as we invest in each other, as we are close to each other and are willing to, to live our lives um, with each other and, and committed to each other. It's being a part of the church is like being part of the family. A family sticks together through difficulties. A family is honest with each other. A family exposes our strengths and weakness. And a family helps us to develop perseverance, integrity, and humility. And the church, as we share the ministry of the light of the gospel, does the same for its members. So for you, whether it is participating in official positions of the church or in the services and programs of the church, these are ways to be in proximity to each other, to serve each other and to be close to them and to share the light of Christ. There's probably someone here that needs your light. There's someone here that needs to see the light of Christ shining through you. So pray that God will open your eyes to his glory and to the light of his knowledge, and that you will be a light, and that you will have eyes to see the opportunities that you have to share that light and to be an encouragement. We need people who persevere. We need people who do not throw in the towel in frustration or anger or disappointment when things go wrong. And the ministry of life gives us strength to continue. We need people of integrity. We need to be committed to being honest with each other and speaking the truth and upholding the word of God without apology. And we need people of humility, people who are willing to offer what they have without being proud or ashamed of who they are. As we fix our eyes on Christ, as we see the light, as we grow in our spiritual understanding, we can be a people of God that shines the light of the gospel in a dark world. Let's have a song.